Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I am so glad you're with us. Looking back on uh, 2022, we'll look forward to 2023. It's our special for the year end. I mean, there's so much to talk about. The number of stories, or I'm going to give you a quote of the week. I'm going to give you a shocking stat of the year. I'll give you a goofy of the year. All of them, my criteria were, okay, so what's going to stay with us? What's going to keep extending into next year, maybe dominate the next year, form the context for it? That's what I'm looking at. But I'm going to have Victor chime in. I'm going to have Victor Dare chime in. We also, Mike Levy will be back next week, by the way. But we also have Don Villalo with us, uh, timingthemarket.ca. He's going to say, okay, what did we say this time last year? What happened? And I'll tell you what happened was very positive compared to what the forecasts were. And then what are we going to look for for 2023? I know, a cliche to live, one of those look back, look forward shows, but this one's worth it. But first, what about my top story? What's my top story of the year? Well, as I said, I can't think of a year when there's been more competition. Come on, given the number of major stories that are so obviously impacting us directly. I mean, rising interest rates. Hey, the Russian invasion and the sanctions. Escalating tensions with China. Our rising costs of living, number one story for most of us, fueled by the energy crisis, by the way, and rising interest rates, which in turn, those rising rates, had a dramatic impact on the value of every asset we own. Some people have lost their job. Here's the killer, though, and I'm proud to say I don't think anyone was bringing this forward before money talks, and that is the goal of the central bank and their interest rate increases was to slow the economy, get assets prices to drop. Well, that's what we've got. And as we've been saying for three years, if you think 2022 was wild, we forecast it would be the beginning of the monetary crisis. Note the word beginning because we're not close to being done. 2023 is going to be more volatile, more chaotic than 2022. Now, look, I appreciate you can file this under the, my God, that guy's a tiresome old man. Because I repeat J.P. Morgan's line so often that you can ignore politics and economics, finance. The problem is they won't ignore you. But I don't think it's ever been more obvious. As anyone who's gone to the grocery store or had to renew their mortgage, fill up their gas tank, or exchange loonies into U.S. dollars can attest. But you know what? I didn't choose any of those stories as the biggest of 2022 with far-reaching consequences. No, I could have. because. I mean, they're profoundly impactful, a choice that everyone listening would understand, especially given their impact is going to continue, as I said, right through the next few years. But I chose something that I don't think is going to make anyone's list as one of the top stories, let alone the top story. But nonetheless, I think its impact is profound. And I know it's something that I've talked about many times. So with no further ado, my top story of the year is the rise in censorship. Or put another way, the continued rise in the no questions allowed attitude of the establishment, arguably no more evident than major stories that dominated the news like the energy crisis or the response to COVID. I mean, the how dare you question the government's COVID response was eerily similar to the lack of tolerance for questions when it came to the renewable energy and the mandates for electric vehicles. Whether it was questioning the now fully discredited COVID lockdown approach, that ironically has been rejected in research in the years leading up to the pandemic, we implemented, no questions allowed about it, or maybe just simply pointing out when it came to climate policy that wind and solar power were intermittent and require backup power. I mean, the no questions allowed approach was dominant. 
Even experts who dare question the prevailing narrative lost their job. Lots of examples were vilified or ostracized. As Michael Schellenberger, once the darling of the climate movement, who Time magazine named a hero of the environment, stated in quotes, I remain quiet about the climate disinformation campaign because I was afraid of losing friends and funding. The few times I summoned the courage to defend climate science from those who misrepresented, I suffered harsh consequences. And so I mostly stood by, did next to nothing as my fellow environmentalists terrified the public. Well, he had lots of company. It's a theme that was repeated with both COVID and climate coverage. We had lots of experts when it came to the COVID coverage say, I didn't want to speak up because I was going to lose my funding. But they tried to scare the heck out of the public in order to manage our behavior. That was the goal. Questioning the government and establishment response was not welcome. More than not welcome. Experts and professionals lost their job. And now with the release of the Twitter files and with Mark Zuckerberg's acknowledgement, we know Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, other social media platforms had succumbed to pressure by government and the FBI to censor experts who called into question the government approach. You know, I loved Elon Musk's summation he gave this past week stating, is there a conspiracy theory about Twitter that didn't turn out to be true? Because so far, they've all turned out to be true, if not more true than people thought. I can't think of an attitude that's more antithetical to science or progress or innovation than don't ask questions. Yet it's the norm when it comes to so many issues. And the last two years have seen the Canadian government, which is clearly in favor of controlling what, you know, what's considered acceptable speech. Well, they've pushed three separate pieces of legislation, Bill C-10, C-11, Bill C-36, that leading experts have called an attack on free speech. I should add, without a reaction in the broad public or in the media, which used to be one of the leading opponents of censorship, oh, no reaction from the universities. My point is that we are yet to suffer the full effect in terms of progress and innovation, but also when it comes to social unrest. And I'll leave you with this. As Twitter's former head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, just reminded us, he said he fled his home to the escalation in threats due to his role in censoring individuals, including medical experts who questioned the government's response. And that is that censoring people incites them to respond, respond in times and a violent manner. We live in a culture that features disrespect of opposing views, that increasingly censors views that question the establishment narrative. And instead of openly discussing them, openly debating them, where you can expose the deficiencies, the approach has been to shut down the conversation. I'm simply pointing out that has far-reaching implications for society, including heightened social unrest and even more violence. As I say, I'm so glad you're with us. We've got lots of great stuff for you. But just a reminder, and I'm going to keep reminding you, so you got a warning on that. We've got February 3rd and 4th, we have the World Outlook Conference. Well, make sure you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, get your ticket. I think it's going to be absolutely fabulous. And in the meantime, remember, you can always go to Money Talks Tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. That's where I get to keep you up to date on things I see during the week that just aren't getting featured in the mainstream media. I think you'll find it worthwhile. I'd 
love a good roadmap, and that's why I brought in Don Vialo. Love to chat with him again. Timingthemarket.ca. Don, appreciate you finding time. You know, we're looking forward to 2023. Obviously, that's the cliched thing you do at this time of year, but it's important to have kind of a roadmap here. And I'm thinking, for example, last year you said, hey, second year of a presidential uh, term, you know, you're going to bottom in the first half of the year, then you're going to rally. Well, I think that absolutely is what happened. Yeah, it's been amazing. Historically, uh, the U.S. market and the Canadian market uh, reached a very important four-year low around the middle of the midterm election year, which was this year. Uh, It's a little bit different this this, uh, time around. Uh, We actually had uh, a double bottom with both the Canadian and U.S. equity markets, Uh, one right around the end of June and the other one right around the middle of October. But historically, once you reach uh, that uh, low, uh, then that's a very important point in the markets to become fully invested. And now what's happened since the middle of October? Markets have rallied slightly. I guess uh, the uh, Dow and S&P 500 are up about 2% and the TSE Composites up about 3%. So we're, we're getting lined up for the next year, uh, which historically has been a very good year. Historically, in the uh, year after the, uh, the third year of the presidential election cycle, is the best year for both the Canadian and for the U.S. equity markets. In fact, going back to 1930s, this particular year, the third year of the presidential cycle, on average, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has increased 14% per period. Wow. And and how consistent is that? This is what I really enjoy, the seasonality you do. And, of course, we'll talk technicals here that you also do. But the seasonal tendency, I guess, is how I put it. Not guarantee, but it's a tendency. And so how consistent has that been? Yeah, historically, on a seasonality basis, you like to have trades which work about uh, 75 to 80% of the time. And that is the, the case for this particular uh, estimate. Okay, so, wow. that's. I mean, that that's for me, it's a starting point. It says, okay, now we drill down and say, you know, what groups or what individuals, whatever. But the overall tendency of the market in the third year, as you've just said, averaging, wow, 14% gain, but reliable about 75% of the time. So obviously that brings you to, uh, you know, when you look forward into 2023, how do you use that information? Where do you go next? Well, the key is you want to look at the uh, sectors that do best. And this is what we did in the uh, last year's uh, World uh, Conference. And uh, last year we made a a sector selection, which was the metals and mining sector. And uh, if you look at what happened uh, this year, uh, that seasonal trade was pretty spectacular. Uh, First of all, some background. Uh, The reason for the recommendation is that that sector does very well right through until uh, June, of each, June of each year. Well, this year was a little bit different. Uh, the uh, metals and mining sector, based on the, the ETF, the symbol is XME, from around the time of the uh, conference last year to uh, around the end of April, the uh, XME uh, went up 55%, so a huge gain. So investors did very, very well for that particular trade. The question is, is it going to happen again this year or next year? Well, historically, this the uh, metals and mining sector bottoms right around the beginning of October. Well, this year, it's a little bit different. This year, it looks like it's bottomed right around the end of September. And it's starting to show some really good recoveries from since then. 
That's because base metal prices have done well. Demand for steel has increased quite nicely. So all these things are coming together for this year and probably for next year as well. Already, if you look at the, uh, the XME from the, its bottom near the end of September, it's already up 25%. It's a really good gain. But sure there's good, re good reason to believe that it's set up for even farther gains as we get into uh, 2023. Historically, the sector does well right through until April of each year. Well, it's interesting, too. This past week, we got kind of word of the lifting of lockdowns in China. I mean, they're no longer going to require people who travel, travel to China to quarantine, as one example there. It's clearly because uh, the lack of Chinese demand uh, because of their lockdown approach or zero COVID approach has certainly had a huge impact on a variety of uh, you know, sectors, but mainly the commodities is what people look at. So, uh, you know, if they indeed are coming back, you never know, but they have certainly made those announcements this past week. Uh, that would also be a positive, I would suspect, uh, for the commodity sector. Yes, exactly. The commodities are so important in two areas. For example, uh, commodity demand uh, in the United States and Canada increased quite nicely this year because of the uh, programs in the states which are designed to uh, improve uh, infrastructure. But also, as you mentioned, China is so important. It's just starting to open up. And demand for steel and for copper and zinc and all these commodities is going to be very strong getting into farther into the year. So that's setting up the trade in the metals and mining sector for a, a really good move into the year 2023. No, I'm just I'm just throwing stuff at you because I know how interested people are. And in, in, again, you were here at the World Outlook Conference last year. Uh, people did very well following those recommendations. But as you know, there's some you know really consistent interest. And in one of the areas, uh, both gold and silver, uh, have great interest. But let me start with gold. You know, coming out of that sort of mining discussion. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, gold also has very strong seasonality. Historically, gold and precious metals bottom right around the middle of December, and they move higher right through until around the end of February. That's one of the two periods of seasonal strength, and I call that the, uh, the, uh, the China effect, where the Chinese New Year uh, opens up. The other one is from about the middle of June right through until September of each year, and that's uh, what I call the Indian Diwali effect, where there's an in increase in demand for precious metals at, at that time for jewelry. This year, it was a little bit different. Uh, first of all, the trade uh, early in the year was was quite, really quite spectacular. It worked very well. That was the uh, the trade for the China opening. So last year, we from uh, December of uh, 2020 to March of 2021, we saw the uh, XGD, which is the gold ETF in, on the TSE, is up 35%. Now this year, the trade for the uh, summer trade, the one from June to September, it didn't play out. What happened is the US dollar was very, very strong during that period of time. And that squashed the possibility of a, a trade in, in the summertime. But now it comes right down to what's gonna happen this time around. We're back to the middle of December and how does it look for the trade getting into middle of December until, say, February of next year? And so far, so good. Technicals are starting to improve for XGD. Looks like gold prices are bottom, and they look like they want to go higher. So this year, the play for the, the China uh, New Year's is looking very, very good. 
as China starts to improve its economy, you're going to have greater demand for gold and gold jewelry, and that's going to help the price of gold move higher right through the Chinese uh, New Year coming up very shortly. And that's coming up, by the way, uh, I believe it's on uh, uh, January the 22nd, uh, this, uh, this time around. What are you seeing on the technical side? Now, we're talking seasonal, just to keep everybody up to date, the cyclical patterns, the seasonal patterns. But then you drill down and you look at it, the actual technicals at timingthemarket.ca. Uh, tell me, what are you seeing technically for gold? I mean, uh, it's still trading in a range. Uh, you know, we did have their dip down into that 16s, the high 16s. You know, we've seen to bump up against something, you know, north of 1900 several times. I look at very specific uh, technical indicators. First of all, I look at the trend, or currently the trend for for gold on, on an intermediate term basis is still down. But on a short term basis, it has bottomed about uh, two weeks ago and starting to show some signs. But I also look at how gold is doing relative to the S&P 500. And that's one of the uh, tip-offs the, for the uh, seasonal gold trade. When you start to see gold and gold stocks outperform the S&P 500, that's a pretty good sign that the trade is going to work on a seasonal basis when again. Then I also look at short-term indicators, things like RSI, stochastics, uh, and um, MACD is the other one that I look at. And those have all turned up quite nicely during the last two weeks. Uh, are you seeing a correlation with silver's action? I mean, it had that dip down in the fall that I thought seemed low to me, <laughs> you know, but and it's had a, a decent sort of move off of that, but are, are you, do you have anything clearly getting uh, spelled out for 2023? Yeah, there's certain things we look at when at the precious metal side. We look at how uh, silver is acting relative to gold. We look at how the equities are acting relative to uh, the precious metals themselves. And we have a, a very distinct uh, trend here. We have silver outperforming gold right now, which is a very good sign the seasonal trade in precious metals is lining up very, very nicely this year. Also, we're starting to see the uh, uh, the equities to outperform the both gold and silver. Also a very good sign that the seasonal trade is going to work once again this year. Actually, you just read my mind because I was thinking I don't want to confuse people. Obviously, we could be talking bullion and we can be talking shares. So you've just answered that question that you're looking at favorable performance out of the gold shares, out of the silver shares as one of your indicators there. But again, we're looking at it moving higher, as you say, into Chinese New Year at the end of January, uh, usually a, a period of seasonal strength at this rate. So you're getting some confirmations in that direction. Exactly. It's all getting lined up once again for a very attractive seasonal trade this year. Um, I know I'm jumping around, but I just, as I say, I'm, I appreciate what people will say. Well, ask them about this. Ask them about this. Well, I'm going to save one of my favorite trades uh, for a moment or two more, but just get a broad take from you on the oil market. Again, yeah. I'm thinking China's reopening. You know, uh, they have We've lost about 2 million barrels per day from demand that we'd normally get from that direction. So maybe that'll slowly build as a sort of un unravel or unlock rather uh, their economy. Yeah, on a seasonal basis, crude oil has a period of seasonal strength right around the middle of December, right through until usually right through until uh, June of each year. Uh, and something else, which is one of your favorite trades, and that's gasoline. I, and, that's the uh, one. You, it, that's it's the always, one for me, Don. It's <laughs> fascinating how uh, gasoline and crude oil uh, pretty well track each other. Historically, gasoline does bottom right around uh, about the middle of de December and starts to move nicely higher from that point. And historically, moves higher right through until 
around the end of the uh, beginning of the driving season in the United States, right around the end of May. Of course, this was a spectacular trade last year uh, from the time that we had the uh, World Conference right through until approximately the end of June. Uh, the price of gasoline doubled. So anybody that followed that trade was a happy camper. So the question is, what about this year? And yeah, we're starting to see gasoline prices reach a technical bottom about two weeks ago, starting to outperform the uh, major market indices and short-term momentum indicators are already starting to turn higher. So this is getting lined up for a very attractive seasonal trade once again. A couple things about that. One, I first I want to acknowledge. Uh, obviously, I've been you know in the markets a long, long time, uh, but you were the one who brought that gasoline trade to my attention a number of years ago. And one of the things that first jumped out at me, and I am not making a recommendation because we don't know what people's individual circumstances are. We're just putting stuff on their radar screen. But it's worked out on a probability basis. Uh, we had talked earlier about uh, you know the third year of a presidential cycle working out seventy five percent of the time. Well, this trade that you're describing in the gas market, the wholesale gas market's worked out higher than that. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, during the last 20 periods, it worked uh, 18 times. So that's a pretty good uh, uh, ratio of success, about 90%. Yeah, it's a good starting point. But the other thing is there's some fundamentals that are pretty basic here. We know we drive less, you know, as we come into the winter season. That usually plays out pretty consistently. We know, though, the, the big thing that, again, that you've been uh, sort of pioneering is making people pay attention to when they switch over from the winter grade of gas to the summer grade of driving and the uh, grade of gasoline, that creates an automatic shortage at times. And uh, it's, that's been consistent, too. Yes, the, uh, there is an added, added is given to the gasoline. And, of course, by definition, by providing additives, there's more cost involved and the price automatically goes higher. Another factor in that is historically, something strange historically has happened at the major refineries, both in Canada and the United States. There's usually one major refinery blows up in the springtime. Don't know which one it's going to be, but historically that's what's happened. And whenever that happens, you get a short-term period of time where the availability of the kind of gas you want is not always there. And, and again, just a, a reminder that what we've been talking about also is uh, how to, how to if you choose, if it's appropriate for you, risk-wise, et cetera, uh, you know, you're looking at an exchange-traded fund, UGA, um, you know, is, is a symbol, uh, and you would participate in that way. But, I, I, you know, Don, I got to be blunt. I love it because at the Outlook Conference last year, you, of course, talked about that. Of course, as you know, you have to because I beg you, but you talked about that. But, I mean, we're talking about a massive move last year. And again, that sounds too hypey on my part, but there has been a consistency. I just want to put it, uh, put it on people's plates. But it was a very strong move last year. Well, we're starting to see a little bit of here in, uh, in the Toronto area. Uh, the price of gasoline just over the last week has gone from a dollar forty-four per liter up to a dollar forty-seven. So we've got some early signs that the seasonal trend is going to happen once again. Uh, and let me come to a couple of other. I'm keeping you a little longer than I said, and I know it's the time of year that uh, you've got other things on. But just a couple of other uh, quick ones. One is we talked about the U.S. dollar. I mean, it holds such a key for. Of course, we price everything in commodities in U.S. dollars. Just any take on the U.S. dollars or a seasonality there or a technical picture there that uh, you know that we should at least be paying attention to. 
There is uh, seasonality in the U.S. dollar and also in the Canadian dollar. Historically, the U.S. dollar has weakened uh, during the last two months of the year relative to almost all the currencies in the world. That has a lot to do with the way currencies are, are, are handled. A lot of corporations are moving funds from, say, Europe or Canada back to the United States and whatever for dividend payment purposes and for um, basically fixing up their balance sheet for the end of the year. So that's historically happened. And right around uh, the beginning of January, the U.S. dollar historically has started to move higher. Uh, that's probably a reasonable indication of what's going to happen this time as well. During the last uh, two months, the U.S. dollar has been under significant uh, downside pressure. And it's good reason to believe that uh, that downside uh, trend is probably going to flatten out here for a while. If that's the case, uh, that still uh, means that there's opportunities here to watch the currencies very, very closely. So historically, that's because of currency trends, it's another reason why you want to own Canadian equities instead of uh, U.S. equities. Um, historically, the best time to own the Canadian uh, market, the, particularly the TSX 60, is from the middle of December right through until the first week in March. If you think about it, there's a lot of things happening during that time. People are con contributing to their RSPs and their TSFAs, and that's the kind of money that goes into the equity markets. So historically, that's the time when the Canadian equity market significantly does outperform the U.S. equity market. So it's a good time to be a Canadian and to invest in Canada. Well, you know we're going to be calling on you again to give us updates on all of this. But, uh, Don, please know how much we appreciate you finding time this time of year for us. As you know, I was very keen on getting you on to give us what was coming up uh, this coming year, what the kind of background we need to make our investment decisions. Done a great job. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. Don Vialo, timingthemarket.ca. Go to it every day. It's free, great commentary. You get the charts on the technical side of things, timing the market, and you get the seasonality, timingthemarket.ca. Time now for the quote of the year. Well, not a surprise that there were so many to choose from. Although, before I get to my choice, I have to ask myself a question, by the way. Did I choose this because it reinforces the long-standing, what I call primary trend that we talk about on Money Talks all the time, and that is the decline in confidence in government? Or is it an important measure that our thesis is actually getting more widespread acceptance? Probably a little of both. But I welcome the verification of the well-respected voices of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. But it's more important to note that until politicians, government officials, and in this particular case, Nobel Prize winning economists who endorse President Biden, massive spending agenda as being non-inflationary, or I could go to public health officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who misled the public, understand the profound consequences of their actions, which undermines confidence in government. And yes, along with our political leaders, who the great columnist Peggy Noonan observes, we don't even have the expectation they tell us the truth. But it's not just politicians. As I said, it's the entire establishment, from public education, Canadian Medical Association, provincial counterparts to the mainstream media. What note, what's noteworthy is that it's not that they don't see the distrust. No, they recognize it, which they dub populism, by the way or the erosion of confidence in government and its institutions, very few seem to understand or simply don't want to acknowledge the role they play in fueling that trend, which is why when the mainstream publications like the Wall Street Journal acknowledge the problem, that I think it's so significant. 
Here's the quote of the year. In quotes, one hallmark of our era is the collapse of public trust in government and experts of all kind. But it's hard to fault the public when so many experts and their policies have failed in such spectacular fashion. The inflation that progressives helped to cause, failed to anticipate, and then ignored is one example of earned public distrust. End of quote. And I think there's many other examples. But as I say, I think that's one of the major overriding trends that we're going to be dealing with that has implications for all sorts of things from social to economic. Well, come on, one of the biggest stories of the year, and that's what we're looking at here, had to be real estate market, uh, you know, wherever it is. And that's why we're so happy to have Ozzy with us, ozbuzz.ca. You know, I, I think I can guess this one, Ozzy, but what was the biggest story, do you think, this year? Well, clearly it was the fast increase in interest rates and mortgage rates to follow. It And, and, and the point is, it isn't just that they went from a quarter percent to four and a quarter, and that meant the five-year rate went from 2% to close to 6%. It isn't just that. It's the speed at which that happened. It has to be the big story. And you know what, Mike? It isn't even the biggest news because the decline started before before the interest rates came. And, and then, of course, the interest rate increase was the big killer. And since most analysts always report year over year, it didn't dawn and to anybody that we were in trouble. But you and I talked every week on the show that the interest rates had an inc- impact on top of the decline already. Well, I mean, the two things I want to pat you on the back for is uh, well in advance, you said the Bank of Canada had made a big mistake not raising rates late fall or or in January at their meeting then. You said that's going to really result in much more intensified move. That's exactly what we've got. You also said, you know, in February, you were sniffing a, a top and that obviously proved to be the case. But I mean, yeah, I, I mean, certainly one of the shocking stats of the year had to be a bank rate that moved uh, 1,700%, you know, in six months or eight months. But the other one for me, and it's among the mortgage rates, you know, it's right up your alley, but come on, I could still get a five-year variable rate at 0.9% on uh, March 1st. And what are we now? 5.75% on that same yeah. variable rate? The, the, yeah, and you can get it. It's 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 always somewhat below prime, depending on how good a credit risk you are. But yes, uh, even a five-year rate is below the prime now of six forty-five. You can get it maybe at six. But the increase, the steep increase, has now accelerated the decline in house prices. Look, the single-family home in Surrey went from a one point nine million in February to one point three million in. In, the, in November, now you say, oh, well, that's sorry. Well, Toronto single-family average home price in the area of 416 went from 2 million to 2 million five. So the decline is 30%. And as we go into report February over February, the headlines will be saying what you and I have been saying for the last six months. The market is seriously affected. It shows it also in the decline in sales volume, down 63% in Vancouver and in the Fraser Valley, 69%. Well, I mean, one, I mean, my goal on Money Talks, and it's yours, and it's Victor's and Michael's, and uh, you know, the guests we bring on is to help people in this time that I've called historic change, and I stand by that. I'm proud of that. But I mean, you know, it's really interesting. People who don't pay attention, as I always say, you know, really paid a price because it's a goal. I think one of the things that we brought forward that I didn't see anywhere else at the time, but it was the goal of the Bank of Canada to put your housing down. 
uh, you know, to impact our, uh, our assets. It was the goal to increase unemployment. This is just such a shocking situation. And you just alluded to, there's nothing that most of us will do that will have lost more money than the value of our house from March through the end of the year. And all that is connected. In fact, the government is losing huge tax uh, tax advantages from the property transfer taxes and so on. But the, the idea that the speed was really shocking um, doesn't leave my mind. I mean, it's the same in the United States. You know, we went from just under 3% to 7%, and that clearly has a, has a dramatic in- impact. Well, the other thing that's going to be a question, and I mean, I'm interested in what Victor has to say and Michael has to say about this, but... You know, I think the I think the central bankers have been very clear that they're not done yet. And I think there's wishful thinking that they are done and maybe they will be. You know, maybe these numbers will finally catch up to them and say, well, that's sufficient. But I'll tell you this, you know, they've been saying they want the inflation rate back down to 2%. Uh, you know, I, that'll be tough. But my point is, if they back off before you get a reasonable decline like that in the 3, you know, 3% range, maybe, if they back off before that, their credibility is going to be shattered given how many times they said, you know what, rates are going up until they get the kind of inflation number they're looking for. But that's why we, they're, they're scared. I don't think they're going to increase the rates much further, maybe another quarter point, but they're going to stay up there. People believe in this pivot thing that we're going to go down. No way. And we won't see, in my view, we won't see 2% inflation rate uh, for two or three years. So quite a ways on inflation will be with us for a while. But so the problems that are coming are that we're going to hit the trigger rates at a massive scale. We haven't really had that. That is when somebody signed that, 0.9% mortgage or a 2% mortgage. And now the interest payment on the variable was supposed to be fixed, but now you're no longer paying off anything. So, hey, guess what? Interest payment are going to increase. And we've seen increases from, say, on an average mortgage of 600000 from the payment of 2500 to 4500 Wow, that's a $2,000 a month hit. That's serious pain. And the other thing we've talked about, and I know I'm, I am a tiresome person, Ozzy, because I keep hammering this stuff, but it's because I'm desperate that people understand it. And that is all of these mortgage rate increases for the normal person. I'm not talking investors at this moment, but normal people. I mean, they're after tax dollars. And it's That's nothing, right. you can't just say, oh, it's an extra 500, an extra 700. No, you've got to earn significantly more than that pay your income tax, then you've got the after-tax dollars. And I think your point is really interesting. As we continue to have these rates up there, not pivoting down, but just sort of stay at the high level, more and more people, it becomes unaffordable. They maybe use their savings up to this point, maybe stretch their credit card a bit, maybe change some buying habits. But at some point, an increasing number of people, it becomes unaffordable because these are after-tax dollars. And like you say, the government is sitting there with their hands out and they're sneakily, I think, put in uh, things that on the face of it seem all right. Like, for instance, treating your income on a capital gain on a sale inside 12 months, that sounds on the face of it, well, you're making a profit. So I buy a house, that's my business, I clean it up, I work hard, and then the gain is income. That sounds very much to me that, hey, well, it's only 12 months. Or what if they go for two years and then three years and four years? All of a sudden, sneakily, in a way, they have done away with a capital tax, capital gains-free exemption. You know, in, a, in and maybe in, in the beginning of, of much, much other stuff in, in taxes. 
property taxes are in Vancouver going to go up at a minimum of 5%. The council already discussed that. So expect the taxes to continue. And so there's a whole bunch of things, of course, you can do about, which we'll talk at the World Outlook Conference in great detail. But taxes are here to stay, and I don't think the market is going to recover that quickly either. Well, just one little glib remark for me is it's really interesting when people are making money in the real estate market, there's a whole chorus of people saying they should be paying more tax. It's interesting, as you've just alluded to in the last eight months, we've seen significant losses. No one ever talks about uh, dealing with those in a different way, like helping people out. No, it's only a one-way one street, and that's when you make money, the government wants a piece. When you lose money, well, we don't know your name. So I, I know it's a glib remark that needs more deep, deeper analysis, but that certainly jumps out at me every single time we experience one of these downturns. So, Ozzy, let me just finish with this with you. And again, you'll be at the World Outlook Conference, but better than that, I get to chat with you every week. Uh, what's the overriding theme you see in 2023 or, or item or issue or worry that you have? Well, the one thing is don't expect interest rate increases uh, to come down. St expect them to stay at a high level, so you have to work with it. And when prices are going to be actually compared February over February, it'll have a further cooling of the market uh, and, and not too unexpected. So uh, that'll be um, a, a, a massive thing. Very quickly, the foreign buyer program yesterday, we finally got some some regulations. And if you go to uh, statscan.gc.ca and take a look at what areas are affected, it looks like Whistler may be okay. So for anybody that's at Whistler, it may be okay. And there are a whole bunch of exemptions. Uh, it has a, a new law, but has a, a hundred of loopholes in it, too, too many of them to remember. remember. As an opportunity next year, if you're a buyer, if you believe in the long-term recovery of real estate, which I do, then this is your market. Look for assignments, look for bargains on pre-sale incentives. They're massive. Buy work-to-live places, buy movie set potentials. Not all markets are the same. Buy small ski towns, buy selected small towns and suburbs. On which ones? Well, I'll talk at length on that on February the 3rd and the 4th. And I really look forward to surprising some people with some real finds. And in the meantime, people can go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, I want to wish you and Joe and the whole family a, a, a wonderful 2023. And I really appreciate you always finding time here on Money Talks. And thank you, Michael. And you and your listeners, I wish you a peaceful and reflective, forgiving holiday season and a wondrous, exciting, successful, brave, and above all, healthy 2023. Time now for the stat of the year, and there are a lot of candidates to choose from, but I've settled on one that has implications for years to come, one that forms the context, I think, of so much that's going to happen in the next few years financially, and one is that are already, by the way, impacting our financial lives. I'm talking about a number so big it's incomprehensible. It's the total combined government, corporate, and household debt outstanding in the world today. In U.S. dollar terms, 290 trillion. That's 290 with 12 zeros. With a rising interest rate environment, along with a slowing economy, servicing the debt is going to become more difficult, even for governments. In Canada, the parliamentary budget officer has already forecast that debt servicing charges are going to hit something like 53 billion by 2024-25, up from what 25 billion last fiscal year, 31 billion this year because of the rising interest rate problem and rising debt level. 
Sovereign debt is a major and I think potentially catastrophic problem in developing nations. This is one side we don't hear enough about. The UN Development Program has warned that 54 low and middle income countries have, in their words, severe debt problems. That alongside a weak domestic currency versus the US dollar, which keep in mind means if their currency is falling, that means commodity prices are, or commodities are even more expensive, especially when you focus on energy and food. Well, I think that's the combination, as we've been saying on Money Talks, and I think accurately, for social unrest. Already some individuals, companies, as well as governments, have hit the debt wall. Their debt burden has literally become unaffordable. But rising interest costs and affordability are only one part of the story. The other side I want to bring to your attention and reemphasize is that there are huge losses in the bond market right now, and the losses incurred by pension funds, central banks, mutual funds, other pools of capital. Come on, anyone who's invested in a uh, European Union government bond the last 10 years has a huge loss on the books now. It's the same in the UK. In Japan, the losses are continuing to mount. Why? Because the central bank is allowing rates to double, to go up further. Anyways, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions. That is going to be a key component going forward. I mean, anyone in Canada, by the way, who invested bonds in the last five years or the U.S. or Australia, they've also suffered significant losses. And my point, it's not over yet. No, the impact is huge. The stress in the financial system brought on by excessive debt is becoming evident and threatens the entire financial system, as well as the currency system. Why? Because central banks are going to print money to handle any increased interest payments, just like they've done. They've told us the response already. Pandemic problems, print money. Energy crisis, print money. And has implications that we'll spend a lot of time talking about how to protect yourself at the World Outlook Conference and in coming shows. But in the meantime, my stat of the year, $290 trillion in debt. I got to get Victor Adair in here. He's live from the trading desk. Vic, first of all, hope you had a wonderful Christmas. But uh, I had put the pressure on you well before Christmas saying, you know, at the end of the year, I want to talk about what you think the big story is. And I think we both acknowledge there's a ton to choose from. So I'm interested to hear what you chose. Well, in a word, Mike, it's inflation. Uh, and I think everything else or virtually everything else uh, that we faced in the, in the financial markets this year was either a result of or the product of uh, inflation. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, because obviously that's what the central bankers have been talking about. Uh, you know, people wait with bated breath to hear what the inflation number is, the latest one, because they then perceive, oh, that will take the pressure off the central bankers from raising rates. So, I mean, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It seems as though this year... It, it's been all about a waiting game, uh, you know, or, or trying to guess, you know, when is the Fed going to reach peak Fed, as we've called it, get to a point where they're not going to raise any rates any higher and maybe, uh, you know, drop rates. And it seemed like in the broadest sense of the term that the stock market thought once we hit peak Fed, that's a green light special to go back to buying stocks because that's, that's what always works. And, you know, as we've gone through the year here, we've had I think as, as recently as the last Fed meeting, the Fed has, under with Powell, has spelled it out. Hey, we are not going to cut rates. We are going to see this thing through, sort of come hell or high water. But the market, 
somehow wants to fight the Fed on that and say, oh, no, they're going to they're going to have to cut. They're going to have to cut. And that's how it's priced in out there. Well, I thought it so interesting that, you know, when the Fed, uh, let's go back a couple of years, said we're going to lower rates. Everyone believed them. You know what I mean? Like no one, no one pushed back. Of course, they're going to lower rates. And so, you know, don't fight the Fed. They're lowering rates. But now, of course, when they've made very clear pronouncements and have not backed off or wavered from them, we got a lot of people, as you say, the market discounting that, in fact, they aren't going to get inflation back down to that 2% level. And they're going to be forced to drop rates, at least, you know, uh, certainly not raise them any further. Yeah, there is that thinking out there, but, you know, it's kind of like that's water under the bridge now. And of course, this is the end of the year. So we're looking forward to, well, you know, does inflation continue to be the story next year? And Mike, you know, like you, I have no life. I, I read all kinds of research and opinions and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure like you, I see an incredible range of forecasts, you know, from really highly credible, experienced people and all that sort of thing. People with a lot of resources saying, on the one hand, oh, you know, I see inflation dropping back to, you know, we're going to go into disinflation. It'll be negative to other folks who are thinking that, again, depending on your time horizon here, but, you know, we will have much higher inflation as we go into the future. So, you know, I think if folks are looking to, to pick somebody to go with, you know, you want to watch it. You've probably got a predisposition to, to want one thing over the other. Yeah. It, I, I found it fascinating. Exactly. As you're saying, uh, you know, some really high quality analysts, good track records. Uh, and yet the disagreement is massive and it all centers on what the central bank's going to do, which centers on what's inflation going to do. But uh, I've thought that many times this year. I didn't, I didn't know if it was my recency bias. I've just forgotten something, but it just seems like the disagreement uh, amongst quality analysts is massive in this specific regard. Yeah. So, I mean, we have, of course, goods inflation and we got services inflation and goods was a lot of it was the supply chain issues around COVID and, and whatnot. And it seems a lot of those things, a lot of the, the goods inflation has come down dramatically. I'm much more focused, I guess, on what I would call the, the services side, uh, particularly wages. I mean, we've just gone through a year of negative wage growth, which means that people's wage increases aren't keeping up with, you know, the, 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 the increase in vegetables at the grocery store, for sure. And I think people will continue to, uh, workers will continue to press for more pay. We've got some labor shortages, clearly. Um, in almost a bigger picture look of the world, I think we, we are in a new era here. And I know that's everybody wants to say that, but it just does feel that, you know, we've had 20 or so years of low inflation, low interest rates. And I think we're going to go into sort of the opposite of that as we go forward from here. That doesn't have to happen in the next three months, but certainly over the next couple of years, that's the sort of my take as to what's more likely to happen. Well, I think one of the other things people should recognize is how many variables are in play. I mean, thousands and thousands, of course. But my point is, if you what variables you choose to focus on, uh, if you want them, as you said earlier, Vic, maybe some people pick only the ones that sort of verify their own point of view. I've certainly done that in the past and had to learn that lesson the hard way that, you know, cherry picking things just to make myself more comfortable with what investment I had on. You know, as I say, learned that the hard way. We see that in public debate all the time now. You know, like the amazing ability of people to ignore blatant facts. I could give lots of examples, but uh, 
I just find it, it, it fascinating. How many variables are out there? All you have to do is select the right ones that suit your agenda. <laughs> you know, and and uh, I, I think it's going to be more complicated than that. And your ability to be objective is what's key. Well, Mike, that's honestly the reason I do read so much research. I, I'm not looking for somebody to tell me what to do. When I read research, I'm looking, I'm hoping, maybe I'll get an idea of some kind or, or just a perspective <clears throat> on something that will allow me to have an, you know, have an edge in the, in the trading that I do. That's, that's really what reading that research is all about. Well, as you say, if you look at, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm, again, I'm coming back to the Fed has made a very clear statement about what they're going to do. Central Bank of Canada also, but the Fed even seems to be even more clear. They want inflation down to a range, you know, the 2% area, at least they're not stopping until they do. And then I thought one of the most significant things I heard from a central banker this year was Jerome Powell saying a few months ago that if in fact something broke in the economy, they have the tools to handle it. And we've seen examples of that. When the UK pension fund threatened to break, oh, all they did was pump a ton more money. They create the money and pump it. You've got, of course, the energy crisis in Europe, 700 billion last time I counted in some sort of subsidy for consumers and business. Oh, where did they get the money? They printed it. So I think that's what he's alluding to. He says, we can handle that. What we can't handle though, is if inflation continues to run away, you know, if that becomes entrenched as an attitude. So I still, I'm guided by that. If I believe them on the way down, I'm believing them on the way up. I'd agree with that, Mike. And just, you know, I, I often look to what I would call, is there a constituency that is going to support something? And for, for the economists of the world, they, they would understand that we've just got a bigger and bigger and bigger pile of debt that needs to be serviced. We get to the point where paying interest on the debt is going to consume all the taxes that come in. So then they got to make the debt bigger to pay for the other services that the government provides. So I think there is a constituency at the central bank level and at the government level to have higher interest rates. I'm not talking about 10%, but you know, maybe 4%, that kind of a number where that will help reduce the debt service costs for the debt that's already outstanding. So the prospect of going back to 2% or below 2% and staying there, to me, seems unlikely. Yeah, again, this is what it's so much fun and there's so much uh, challenge intellectually is. And of course, who benefits from inflation? It's government. Look at the revenues they get to take in. Uh, but I'll put on the other side of that coin, man, we got rising interest rates into an escalating debt. So it's all of that coming together. And the good news, Vic, we don't have to decide all of it today. I think your top story of the year, though, is right on. And that's the entire inflation story. Well, thanks, Mike. Listen, Happy New Year to you and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Same with you, Vic, and you and Gina. Time now for the goofy of the year. Come on, lots of contenders. The fact that Western nations continue to put so many obstacles that discourage more production of oil and natural gas, which, of course, pushes prices higher. Added to the value of Russian energy, by the way, their exports that they needed to uh, finance the invasion. I mean, the list goes on. Why they didn't think of increasing supply, which benefited Russia, is, well, we know what it is. It's a green agenda. And certainly the failure to plan for backup power when the wind doesn't blow, sun doesn't shine. Come on, that's way up there is one of the dumbest moves I can recall 
in my lifetime. I mean, they had to, and they did, then they decommissioned nuclear plants on top of that. So you look at Germany doing that. And it's forced to massively increase the use of coal. Well, that ain't goofy. I don't know what is. And I'm not going to even go into the outrageous overreach during the truckers' convoy that saw government freeze bank accounts of people who were not charged with anything, let alone convicted. Their crime was supporting a legal protest. It's, by the way, it's very noteworthy that this didn't happen in Canada. No, there was much more outrage and shock by that move outside of our borders. A worthy candidates, to be sure. But after two years of government missteps, I've decided that this year's goofy goes to government and its failure to do its job in so many areas. 2022, for example, a World Bank S&P Global report ranked the Port of Vancouver, come on, the major gateway for consumer goods manufactured in Asia, 368 out of 370 of ports around the world for efficiency. But that arguably isn't actually the low light in travel. Come on, 2022 saw Toronto's Pearson International Airport lead the world in flight delays during the summer. And then there's the problem with luggage, the lost luggage problems that again became noteworthy in late in the second quarter into the summer. And now we don't even want to talk about this travel period for whether we're talking flight delays, inadequate uh, machinery to handle the record snowfalls in some areas or the record uh, freezing. Anyways, but that may even pale in comparison to record passport delays. People were literally lining up for days at the passport office. Now, keep in mind, despite warnings of increased travel demand, we got those warnings as early as October 220 by other government departments. We had the unions representing the passport staff represent uh, warned, and that was over a year earlier, hey, get prepared for a big jump in applications once travel restrictions are lifted. Despite all that, no, no action was actually taken by Service Canada. When travel returned, and it returned to about 55% of the pre-pandemic levels, so we're not talking back to those levels, but it returned to that in spring this year, while delays for passport went to months, not weeks. But I think this, even passport delays paled in comparison to delays for getting treatment for the government-run healthcare system. Now, after years of consistently ranking near the bottom of other Western healthcare uh, systems, it seems to have finally dawned on at least an increasing number of Canadians that we've got a problem with a system. It's a system. It's not a problem with the medical professionals. In fact, we're burning some of them out because of the system. Canada consistently ranks last versus 10 other Western countries when it comes to access to care. I mean, we could be talking about how long it takes to see a physician when you go to an emergency room or waiting for surgery. I mean, and plus, think about this. There's an acute lack of family doctors. Why? Because they've aged out, as if we're surprised that we have a demographic challenge. We don't have availability of diagnostic equipment like MRIs. That's been worn for years. And sadly, tragically, in 2020 21, over 11,500 Canadians died waiting for treatment. And the goofiest part is arguably our refusal, and that includes all of us, to have an honest, let me underline, honest conversation, especially when it comes to the role of private care. We act as if, by the way, it doesn't even exist in the system, yet doctor's offices, x-ray clinics, optometrists, dentists, physiotherapists, they all operate privately. Like so many areas, it doesn't matter. We could be talking climate policy, 
or you know, the failure to acknowledge the role that fossil fuels must play in the transition to renewables, or the dearth of necessary raw materials, or failing to acknowledge the need for backup power because the sun doesn't shine every day, or ignoring blatant fraud in the pandemic relief programs. And that was despite warnings from Revenue Canada and some major banks right from the outset. That we now know, by the way, that $1.6 billion went to people who had quit their jobs. 6.6 million went to people who were in jail the whole time. 3.3 million went to people who didn't live in Canada. 1.2 million went to dead people. We've got questionable payouts and now could be estimated as high as $50 billion range. I mean, the ineptitude of government has been on full display. But you know what? Arguably, the goofiest part is that for millions of Canadians, that's okay. That's just fine. You know what? During this year, one of the things that came to mind so often for me is we've got the government we deserve because we simply don't demand better. Now, let me just say, I hope I, I, I hope you're with us all through 2023. It's going to be a challenging year, more so than 220, and that is uh, 222. That is something to think about. But one of the ways we're going to help you is, of course, with our weekly podcast, but also the World Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. I hope you join me there. I know Victor will be there. Ozzy's going to be there. Even we're going to get Michael Levy back up with us, plus a raft of excellent speakers. I think the more we know, the more background we have, the more research we have at our disposal, the better financial decisions we'll make. And as I said, we're going to need all the help we can get. So let me just wish you, your family, and your friends the best in 2023. Thanks for listening. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.